Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of James chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 19 through 25 today. James chapter 1 verses 19 through 25. Unless you have had a hearing problem, it will be difficult to understand just how impairing a hearing impairment really is. I don't have the experience firsthand, but have had some close family members with great difficulty hearing, and many have written about their experience, even as some go from having good hearing to bad hearing over time. One engineer who is deaf at a tech startup described his experience in his new workplace. He said this, deafness means I don't understand anyone. When someone talks at lunch, I want to know what they say. I miss out on the daily conversation, the back and forth, the friendships made. And the worst part is that I don't have a choice in the matter. Physical hearing impairments are a serious thing. They affect relationships in deep ways. They're involuntary. Well, in today's passage, James addresses two spiritual hearing problems. Hearing problems that affect important relationships and hearing problems, though, that we can do something about by God's grace. Let's read together. James 1, 19 through 25. Hear God's word. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Well, for the better part of the next hour, we're going to stare into the mirror of God's word together. And there are some things that we might see here that make us uncomfortable. Things that we might see that we're used to forgetting or ignoring and looking away from. May God bless us in our hearing and in our doing. First hearing problem that James addresses is a problem of listening to people. First two verses here will actually make up the most of our sermon, verses 19 through 20. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. These short verses are very practical. It has to do with how much we talk and when, listening to people and how we get angry and what to do about it. They're practical, they're also universal. He says, let every person be quick to hear, every person. They're also crucial, it has to do with how God's righteousness is worked out in our hearts and produced within us. We're gonna reflect on these two verses uh, in three steps, looking at three separate words each in turn, anger, then speak, then hear. First, anger. James's readers were under a lot of pressure 
in context. Remember that James is writing to people in the midst of trial. So much so that very early in his letter, he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He holds out that promise for them, which they need to remain steadfast. They're tempted in trial in a variety of ways to think that God is tempting them. How could this be happening? Of course, God tempts no one. He corrects them. They're tempted in trial to become cavalier towards sin, but they must not. Sin conceives, gives birth, and then leads to death. And they're tempted in trial to forget that God is good. And so he has reminded them that God is the giver of every perfect gift. So easy to forget on a hard time. And they're tempted in trial, whether rich or poor, to forget who they belong to, to forget who they are as those born of God and brought forth by the word of God. And so James exhorts them to consider it all joy when they can encounter various trials because trials are actually God's means of producing steadfastness, which has a way of perfecting and completing, he says, their soul for heaven. Ryan has used some helpful illustrations to get at this over the last weeks. We can think of a sculptor chipping away at a block, that which does not belong there. It hurts, but what's left is something beautiful in the end, or muscles which are torn down in the lifting, but then built up in strength. And so God is strengthening us in steadfastness for heaven through our trials. And he reminds his people of this. That's where we've been so far. And now in verse 19, James turns to a sin, which we are all particularly vulnerable to, especially in times of trial. And that is the sin of anger. Anger. If we are easily angered, it is worse when we're going through a trial. When we're not getting as good of rest as we should. When our time and mind is cluttered by some chaos. Things are coming undone. We're snapping, critical, harsh. Maybe a lot, maybe a little. But it's exacerbated by a trial. And in this way, a trial may actually be God's means of exposing sin in your heart so that he may deal with it in you. So thank God for trials and their work. Well, what is anger? This week I tried to come up with a one-line something real simple to define anger. Here's a shot at it. Anger is a response to a real or perceived injustice, a wrong. No one gets angry when the sun comes up. Or on a beautiful day, because it's a beautiful day. We get angry at things that are wrong, injustices, real or perceived. The only problem is that with our anger is that we ourselves are wrong as sinners all the way down. We have broken justice receptors. We don't perceive things properly. We're wrong in our person. We're also guilty of much wrong ourselves, each of us. And this makes our responses of anger to real or perceived injustices often problematic. For this reason, our anger almost always, almost always fails five tests. The test of perspective. We perceive an injustice, but there's, there's none. It will maybe be something that we don't like, but it's no injustice. Jonathan Edwards is said to have re re resolved never to become angry at an inanimate object, since an inanimate object is not a creature and cannot sin, cannot be held morally accountable, cannot be judged, and is also under the sovereign 
design of God. And so to be angry at an inanimate object, he'd said, was to be angry at God. Often enough, people, though, are the things that are in the way of something we want. And so we perceive an injustice where perhaps no wrong has been committed. And it may be helpful to eval- in evaluating how much of your anger at people is legitimate by looking at how often you are angry at an inanimate object, a thing that's in your way. That's the test of perspective. We often fail it. Often the, the, we fail the test of proportion as well. We exaggerate issues. Maybe we properly perceive an injustice, but we improperly perceive its magnitude. Have you ever done that? Consider that we are often angry about little things, but not very angry about very big things. It often depends on how close that thing is to you at the moment. We will be slightly moved by a horrifying injustice on TV. We'll make a nod to anger. But we will be absolutely irate at something that is relatively meaningless if it gets too close to us. I know about this. Like yesterday in my home when a child returned from a birthday party at Explora and her balloon dog popped and the world ended. And it moves from sadness and heartbreak to anger. There's a little, it's subtle, but the kick in the back of the seat. That wasn't sadness. <laughs> I tried to tell her, it's an inanimate object, honey. <laughs> Didn't work. <laughs> the test of purpose is another one. We often fail the test of perspective, the test of proportion, the test of purpose. We think that our anger is serving some important end, even a righteous end, but really our anger is wielded in service to our own greatness and not God's greatness in us. It is un productive anger, the test of providence. Maybe we have a righteous reason to be angry, but we don't regulate our anger by the fact that God saw it too, and he did not strike that person dead, as we just did with our words. That God orders the universe does not mean that there are not injustices at which we should be rightly angry. Death is one to be angry at. Jesus, even as he wept, angry at death. Of Lazarus. But there is a ballast for our anger called the providence of God that keeps us from responding as though we were God at the final judgment. And there's the test of patience. Our anger seeks to accomplish now what God promises to accomplish later. But the scripture tells us to leave room for the wrath of God because we believe on the basis of scripture's promise and God's word that God will make all things right in the end, and it is actually not for us to bring about justice here. So if you are famous for a temper, then you are famous for something that you cannot carry with you into heaven, as Charles Spurgeon said. One of the most important things the Lord wants us to know about himself, consider this, is that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Praise God that he is slow to anger. Praise God that he has not struck us down justly in a moment for our anger and our sins in anger and the cruel things we say to and about one another in our darker moments. Praise God that he is slow to anger. He is so slow. He sent Jesus to the cross who 
did not fight back. He did not revile when reviled. He was afflicted for us. He took on the anger of man. He took on the wrath of God so that we can be forgiven. God is a God slow to anger and that's why you and I are alive today. Search for it in your Bibles. Notice the specific times he says it. Notice the number of times he identifies himself in this way. I've used the driving as a kind of example. This is where our anger is often unchecked. No one is looking, or at least we think. We are surrounded by windows, and everyone else has windows, like six of them. At least we think we can't be identified. But this is not where our anger does the most damage, is it? Our anger does the most damage not to the people we share the road with, but for the people that we share a roof with. For the people, the person, excuse me, that we share a bed with. Henry Drummond. No form of vice, not worldliness, not greed of gold, not drunkenness itself, does more to unchristianize society than an evil temper for embittering life, for breaking communities, for destroying the most sacred relationships, for devastating homes, for withering up men and women, for taking the bloom off of childhood. In short, for sheer misery producing power, this influence of an evil temper stands alone. In marriage, sexual infidelity against a spouse is an epic sin. It is a violation of the covenant. It is a violation of a person. A person who has given their life and their body to you. A person that God has given to you. And sexual infidelity says, this is not enough for me. Infidelity can be the death of a relationship in a single blow. It can. Anger though, Anger is death by a thousand cuts. Over and over, anger says, I hope you die. I hate you and I hope you die. And if you think that's overstating it, remember the way in which Jesus connected anger to the sin of murder. Jesus said, by way of summary, that murder is just anger getting what it really wants. So do not underestimate the spiritual danger of anger to you or those you sin against. It's a little cheesy, but anger is one letter short of the word danger. So that's the first word, anger. Second word, speak, speak. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. A string of obviously, but not so obviously in the moment, related ideas. Words, we could say, are the oxygen of anger. Have you ever noticed how you'll be at a level three? But if you start talking, it's four and five and then eight. It might be 10 if you don't stop talking. Or when you're in a heated discussion, you listen mostly for the chance to speak. You're listening for a window, something to respond to, not to understand. And so you cut people off with your words, which is an apt image. Cut people off with words. 
Because that's what happens. It's not just cutting off words, but it's cutting someone off with words. It's what unlistening words do. Not only do your many words, especially angry words, not help settle your anger, but they, they make the receiver angry so that their response further inflames your anger as now they're defending themselves and overstating their case and using emphatic terms. You end up with a kind of spiraling vortex until it ends with somebody hitting eject and hurting themselves when they do no matter what or someone murdering the other. It's where it goes. Folks, to greater and lesser degrees and with more and less drama, this really is all of us. And so James says, let every person, every person, this 2,000 year old verse in the Bible needs almost no work to get across in 2016. How perceptive is the word of God into the human condition and need? He's slow to speak, slow to slow to listen, slow to hear. What am I trying to say? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. <laughs> Memorize it so that doesn't happen to you. <laughs> Spouses, be careful. If your spouse is given to anger, your home is not a space bracketed from normal daily Christian life, siloed off from the sphere of normal Christian daily life for your husband if they're a Christian or your wife if they're a Christian. It is actually the heart of the normal Christian life. If no one will ever enter heaven angry, then it behooves us to work on anger ourselves and help those we love the most whom God has entrusted to us to work on their anger, to help them see it. And pointing it out may not be appropriate in the moment, but it must be done. You wouldn't let your spouse look at pornography, so don't let them continually return to sinful anger. And if you're not one of those that fills the air with words, since we're talking about speaking, that doesn't mean that you don't have an anger problem still. I'm not saying that you do have a deep anger problem, but it may be that your words are just in your head and in your heart, and they're functioning like oxygen still to fuel the fire of rage, in your case, for an eventual nuclear explosion at some time in the future, or perhaps an ongoing Cold War. So that's anger, and that's the word speak, and what speech does. Now the third word, hear, hear. This is James' solution. Be quick to hear, slow to speak. You can't do both at the same time. If you're going to hear more, you're going to have to talk less. And here's another cheesy observation. Listen is spelled with the same word, letters as silent. I wonder if any of you does math and can come up with some kind of statistic for how impossible it is that those two words are spelled with exactly the same letters, but they are. It's almost like it was done on purpose. Silence is a good thing to practice being slow to speak, but quick to listen, to hear. Silence for the sake of listening for a time will help you with your anger in the moment. And this might seem obvious when we think about it, but it will likely not feel obvious when it counts, if you know what I mean. There are, after all, many other ways that we are and have been tempted and maybe even been taught 
to deal with our anger, that function is a kind of rhythm of the heart and rhythm of the mind and mouth. Venting our anger is one regular way that this is handled. Burn it off with words, express it, let it go. This is the hail kind of anger. It might start as a light rain or a hard rain, but then it gets out of control. It's mean, it's unrelenting, it's undiscriminating. And then it's over. And maybe the sun comes out and all the cars are damaged. They're a wreck. Venting words does not empty the heart of anger. It fans anger so that it consumes you and anyone in range of the heat. If the heart is at a moment filled with poison, is it appropriate to vent the poison out the mouth and into the ears and down into the hearts of other people? The things you say while venting may stick in the mind of the hearer forever. And if you're not actually venting at a person to say mean things to them, it may be mean things about somebody else. And this is where anger, as it so often does, is a close sister to so many other sins. It's the sin of slander, sin of unforgiveness, the sin of bitterness. Um, I was... I was a kid with a bit of rage in junior high, in grade school. A bit of rage might be an understatement. My family, extended family chuckles and they talk about, they, don't, they may not realize what happened, but me before I met the Lord. I'm no perfect saint now, but rage. Uh, I would yell at my mom if I didn't have my way. I hate you. What a cruel and proud thing to say. Mom and dad weren't sure of what to do. They took me to a therapist and I remember us sitting there and the therapist said, I would recommend that you let Trent express his feelings. That you allow Trent to say, I hate you. Then you know what he's feeling. <laughs> they told him he was crazy. We were out of there. <laughs> Uh, my parents did a lot of great things growing up and I'm so blessed to have had them for my parents and that was a really important moment. I wasn't allowed to run very far with that one. Thomas Manton was right. Nothing makes room for Satan more than wrath. So we vent. It's one thing we're tempted and taught to do. Another thing we're tempted and taught to do is to nurse anger. Say words quietly to yourself. Just keep saying words quietly to yourself until you stew and brew and eventually pop. This is the volcano kind of anger. It holds it in. It holds it. It holds it. It holds it. Everything looks calm. And then all at once, boom, the end of a civilization or a family or a job, or a friendship. Some volcanoes are small, like the cute ones we have on a horizon, but there's a bigger one, I think, it is on the horizon. It's a very big volcano. Some of us are both at different times. Then there's the Medicaid anger option. Throw some pills on top of it, like sandbags at a river that's going to flood. The walls around New Orleans before Katrina kind of anger. It's a patch. This is usually what somebody else makes someone else do to fix their anger because they can't not be angry for the person, but they maybe can feed them something to chill them out. It's an easy way out. I need to say that this is not an unqualified dismissal of medication categorically. 
But we should all recognize that in a world that rejects a moral interpretation of our problems and that loves an easy and a quick fix, that pills would be an attractive alternative to working hard at fighting sin. So what medicine does the Bible prescribe for anger, for sinful anger? The Bible prescribes, through James, listening. Vitamin ear. How's that? Vitamin ear. I originally wrote vitamin L. I said, no, ear. Oh, wait, that sounds great. Listening is a weapon against anger. It's a weapon against anger. Listening to words. It's sort of simple, isn't it? It's almost too simple. Listening to words. Not talking and listening. Extinguishing anger slowly through listening. Proverbs 17, 27 says this, whoever restrains, restrains his words has knowledge. Not nursing, nursing anger, restraining words has knowledge. He who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. I mean, even a fool, if he doesn't talk, is deemed as wise. You are wise for not talking sometimes. And it doesn't mean that whatever you're angry about won't need to be addressed in some other fashion and under control, but perhaps at a different time, moments or hours or a day later. There are other things to do with anger. Listening is merely a weapon, but it is an underutilized weapon and it's the one that James gives to us here. It doesn't tell us to vent it, only to listen. It doesn't tell us to nurse it, not to talk at all. It tells us to be slow to speak and quick to listen. It doesn't even tell us not to be angry, but to be slow to anger so that it's right when we are. Now, listening to this, it may seem like listening instead of talking in an angry moment is practically wise. And it, it is practically wise. That's why that proverb just sounds obviously true, like all the Proverbs do. But it may also sound to you to be at times practically impossible. And if it seems practically impossible not to talk, you're not alone. Sometimes we have something to say, important to say. Sometimes somebody has said something that needs to be fixed before they say another word that needs to be fixed. And we're right there to smother them with correction. So it'd be helpful to reflect for a bit on the benefits of listening and just linger on this word here that James has given to us. What, what are the reasons? If we were to say, James, so why should I listen long? Here are some possible answers. When you're quick to hear, you consider what someone else is thinking. You can listen to what they're thinking as they talk and you can consider what they're thinking. Focus your listening by asking questions. When you listen, the universe gets bigger than your life for that particular moment. My daughter was angry the other day and said, no one is paying attention to me, but I'm the main character in the world, which I thought was a brilliant way to express what I feel like all the time. I'm the main character in the world. What is going on here? So we queried her about this obtuse and revealing statement, and she clarified it with a bit of nuance. I feel like the main character in the world, which is a little better. By listening, we confirm, we correct, and we clarify what we're thinking. You can confirm what you're thinking. Ah, that's, okay, I'm on the right track there. You can correct what you're thinking. 
And you can clarify what you're thinking. You contemplate your response. You can convey a desire and willingness to understand, which encourages the same in the other person and gets everything moving in the right direction. Test your listening by restating what you think you're saying to make sure you're really hearing what they're saying and not just what you're hearing. Because you're not always hearing what they're saying even if you're hearing their words. And in a heated moment, maybe their words aren't even doing a great job of getting what they're trying to say across. But listening can mean you hear them right. And by listening, you establish the credibility that comes from knowing the full story so that when you talk, you have a better hearing. They know that you've heard them out. And so now that when you speak, not only what you say is better and more loving and more wise, but it's received as credible. And by listening, you exercise control over yourself, which is a fruit of the spirit. Listening, listening is the delivery vehicle for all of these benefits. None of this means that you can't talk. It just means that you don't talk as soon or as much as you would sinfully want to. The engineer who wrote this piece that I read about his experience in a new job without the ability to hear shared some anecdotes. He writes, in the past few months, I've felt like I'm the last person to know about things. I'm constantly surprised when something happened or changed. Once an engineer left to work uh, the same week, the other two engineers on the same team left to present at a conference when I discovered that I would be the only engineer in the office the entire week. It was after everyone else had gone. It seems like a solution is just to ask more questions. I knew the engineer who was presenting at the conference Wednesday, that maybe I should have asked who else was going and, and how long they'd be gone. Maybe. I need to work on getting these questions to occur to me. It's hard when I still don't know these people very well and haven't learned the social norms because I've never heard them. So, so this gentleman who with a physical hearing impairment knows that there are things that he doesn't know that he needs to know, that he doesn't know what he doesn't know because of his hearing impairment. Well, there are things we don't know when we're in conversation with somebody, but because this is a spiritual hearing impairment, get this, we actually don't want to know them. We don't want more information. We only want confirmation that we're right. We only want submission to our angle. And that's why listening is practically wise, and we can agree with that. But because of our sin in our hearts, it seems practically impossible in the moment. Still, listening to God's prescription, listening is God's prescription for the problem of anger, slowing down. Anger is a force in the heart. Like so many sins, this is not something we feel we can just throw the switch and fix. You may be able to relate with that. Felt out of control, taken by your anger. If you're here and unhappy about being called out on anger, feeling like you're getting shot at here, that's not an altogether bad thing. If you don't know the Lord, perhaps he would use that to help you see your need for the Christ who forgives the angry, for the Christ who died for our anger. That's the first stop. That it would also be the first step in coming to acknowledge and agreeing with God that our sin is our sin if we have neglected it as Christians. But agreeing that it's wrong, agreeing that it's wrong won't be motivation enough to change. You may have actually tried that. I know it's wrong and you've given up. 
You hate the sin of anger, but not enough. And maybe that's because you don't love the people it hurts enough, which is sort of what anger is. It's lovelessness at the person. That makes sense. To hate something, do you have to love something more? But as a sinner, you will never properly love any human being, no matter how much you may love a person. And so the ones that you love the most, you can be angry at in sin and cruel toward. There's a question, though, whose answer will bring us to the deepest motive needed for change. The deepest motive needed for change. And this is one you'll have to reflect on and remember and hold out in front of you as a key. Here's a question. What does anger really cost? There are many answers to that. Anger doesn't get us anywhere. That's true. Not powerful enough. Anger hurts those that we're angry at in sin. And that's true, a better motive. It hurts people. But the best motive is the one that James gives. It does not produce the righteousness of God. It does not produce the righteousness of God. We're not saved by the righteousness that is produced within us. We're saved by the righteousness of Christ. But as those who are saved, God is at work to make us like him. And he has made us to want to be like him. And anger stands in the way of where we are in more and more Christ-likeness. We might even think that it's the righteousness of God that makes us angry in our hearts. We feel justified in our anger. Anger by nature is an expression of a kind of self-righteousness. But anger does not produce the righteousness of God. So God in you, at work in you, is, at, is what's at stake in anger. Anger is a real big problem each of us in different degrees. So just confront it today. Not often we get to linger so long on the word and issue of anger. Two things you must do, confess Christ as savior. He is your only hope and there's great hope in Christ because he does start a work in you that finds its way to its completion in the new creation when anger will actually be no problem for you anymore. Sin's, sin's, sin will be put out and you'll be perfected. And he's the means by which God changes us now. And second, confess your sin in language that would bring Christ glory. Confess your sin of anger biblically. How about this for a suggestion? Use the word anger. Not I got frustrated. Not I got emotional. Please don't say I got emotional. <laughs> if you were angry. Not I got upset. Let's use the word anger. And not even you made me angry or that thing made me angry. You see this? When I moved to a, a newer place we live off of Alameda in 25, I drive by this sign that says convenience center. You know where this is? This is convenience center. I'm like, what? It was next to this big building and then there was a little plaza down the way and I thought maybe that's like a sign that there's this plaza with a couple businesses down there. Why would they call it a convenience center? Never thought about it too long until someone said, oh yeah, you live by the dump. God, I live by the dump. What do you, oh, that's what that is. Convenience center. Call it the convenience center. Bumped into Brett Landis this morning. I almost bumped into him uh, on Saturday morning as he was at the convenience center. He says, oh yeah, it's the transfer station. Well, that's a little more clear. It's a little more descriptive as to what goes on there. You're dumping stuff off and they take it away. It's the dump. So be careful with the way that you describe your sin. This would be a really good first step in the direction of uh, godliness in this issue is being articulate 
with your words and describing what's really going on in the heart, even in your anger saying, I'm angry and it's sin. I'm feeling controlled by it and I need to confess that it's me. And being quiet and not talking and not saying everything you could say, be biblically clear and descriptive in confessing your sin. I was angry, it was sin, forgive me, is a great thing to say within minutes, an hour, not much more than a day. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And praise God, we've got the power to do this. Praise God for the gospel that makes this possible. It changes us. At this point, you might be expecting me to take some time to talk about righteous anger, when it's okay to be angry, and to talk about how Jesus got angry, but I'm not gonna do that. Except to take a moment and explain why I'm not gonna do that, if that's okay. I'm not going to do that because James doesn't really do that. He says, be slow to anger. But his point is not to nuance what anger is good and what anger is bad. It doesn't mean that James doesn't think it's okay at times to be angry. But apparently James doesn't feel that he needs to qualify this with any length. Anger is a big enough problem, sinful anger. And righteous anger is actually a rare enough thing. There's a young man in town who twice now, I guess, got drunk and then started chucking stones through the same office building. Um, if you see him again, don't say, don't chuck stones through that window. But I mean, of course, I can imagine a scenario in which it would be appropriate to throw a stone at the window. I mean, for example, if there was someone locked in there and they were chained up. Or... The word that is needed, the word that is needed is don't throw stones through the window. Don't be foolish. And James is saying, be slow to anger. Don't miss the force of the exhortation. I think it will be helpful for us to more or less assume that in most cases, the things we're angry about neither follow from nor lead to the righteousness of God. So James addresses two hearing problems. Two hearing problems. The first hearing problem has to do with people. We don't listen to or understand, to understand, but to respond. We don't listen patiently, and that creates problems. But this is actually an outgrowth of a deeper problem, a deeper problem. And no surprise, it's always that way. The second problem has to do with listening to God, listening to God, verses 21 through 25. Your ears, it turns out, are connected to your heart. We listen, and then that's it. We forget what we hear. We listen to people impatiently and in, in sin and in many other ways, but we listen to God forgetfully. Let's read together, verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If you care about your five-year-old kid in the ocean, you'll care about a life preserver. If you care about your 16-year-old, you'll care about an airbag. And if you care about your soul at all, then you'll care about God's word. It's the way that God saves us. Don't mishear James. He's not right. He's rights to those whom God has already brought forth by the word of truth. 
In fact, do not, hear mis- do not mishear James. You can't even obey the word. You can't even do the word unless God has brought you forth first by the word of truth. He's landing these commands on us as those, if we're in Christ, who can actually keep them. We're commanded with good reason to receive the implanted word. But receiving the word will require some things. Seeing this word grow in our lives. Some things have to go. Some things inhibit the word and its growth. Filthiness and wickedness are like rocks in the soil of the heart that keep the word from taking strong root. Anger is an example of one of these. Not only does it not produce the righteousness of God in us, but it blocks the word of God from growing. Wherever anger is, the word is not. So depending on how much anger is in the heart, to that degree, the word is absent. Receiving the word requires that some things get out of the soil of the heart. And it requires that some things get put in. Meekness, he says, receive it with meekness as a kind of fertilizer for the heart. Opposite of self-exalting pride, the root as it is of so much anger. So to take that topic of anger, which we spent some time on and which is sort of the context for the exhortation, let's reflect on pride as the root of anger, the opposite of meekness. There's pride in the good opinion of others. And this leads to be, this leads us to be angry with our kids when they make us late somewhere or angry with someone who misunderstands us or misrepresents us or falsely accuses us. Pride in the good opinion of others. There's pride in high position of others. This leads us to be angry when we don't get what we want in a promotion or a raise over others. This was Cain's kind of anger. If the good approval of others and the worship of that fear of man was Saul's kind of anger, this is Cain's kind of anger or Absalom's kind of anger. And there's pride in the perfect life at the service of others. This leads us to be angry when the house isn't clean or the repair guy isn't on time or when the kids are too loud. The waterfall of anger has many tributaries and pride is its water. So get the rocks out. Get meekness in, fertilize the soul for the word with meekness. When the word takes root, it bears fruit. But this is not an analysis of how the word brings that about. It's not an analysis of how the word brings fruit. It's a command to receive the word and to bear fruit. It's a command to do the word. And this is very close to the heart of the book, biblical action in life, working out our faith, obedience. So friends, may I be so bold as to say that you should obey the Bible today, that you should obey the Bible. May I be so bold as to suggest that after sitting under the word for the better part of an hour, that we should leave intent on contemplating how might we might live differently and then actually go about that. It is so easy to walk away and forget And may I be so bold as to give you an illustration that is so simple, a three-year-old could get it, but it will offend all of us on the wrong day in church, for it will say even being here was a kind of silliness. Here's how silly it can look. I'll give you a story. So there was this guy, and this guy looked in a mirror. And the reason he looked in the mirror was to see himself and to evaluate his appearance. He looked intently in the mirror. For 45 minutes, he looked intently in the mirror. Kind of hard to imagine a guy doing that, at least. He looked in the mirror, and there he was. And there it was, a hair fairy. And he said to himself, would you just take a look at that? Look at it. Look at that hair fairy. I need to fix that hair fairy. And then without touching his hair, he walks away from the mirror, 
and does nothing about it and forgets entirely that it's there. I apparently had this problem one or two sermons ago when Drew mentioned in our little meeting before the service that I had a hair fairy and I forgot to fix it, so I'm sorry. I don't know if you caught it in the light. I saw it when I got home. Well, there are some men in this room right now who have hair fairies. There is a reason, he says he, maybe, probably not. But we might suggest there's a reason he says he looks in the mirror. What happens to some of us men when we look in the mirror? We see these things so many times, these aberrations so many times we get used to them. We don't see them anymore. We even think that it's how it's supposed to be. We might make a style out of it. But the Bible is a mirror of a different kind. The Bible shows us what we actually look like, but the Bible also shows us what we ought to look like. It doesn't let us get away with getting used to ourselves. In fact, James says it, we actually have to deceive ourselves to walk away from it. So when you hear the word, if you walk away unchanged or without the intent to do the word, it's not that you were left exactly where you were when you showed up. It's you left in a worse position than you were. You're deceived. A mirror is for self-examination and for transformation. And so, so among other things is God's word. So when we come to, the, come to the church and sit under the Bible, the climax of the service is a sermon and everything is a preparation to God's word being preached. We came to church to look into the mirror. It's like a soul spa day to get an adjustment. But we must remember that God does not need us to listen because he needs a listening ear. He needs, we need a listening ear because we need to listen to God. We're here for us in an important way. He's the boss of the universe. Imagine you had a special appointment with your boss at work, a special appointment with the CEO of the company who wanted to talk to you and evaluate you and speak to you about your work. You get up early, you put on nice clothes for that appointment. When you get there, you have some time, maybe 30 minutes of preparation before you're gonna hear what he's going to say in the waiting room. And then you're invited in and there's encouragement and there are good words and perceptive words and there's a bit of correction and re-steering. And you walk out and forget all of it and you're the same day next person, you're the same person the next day, unlikely. But so often it is what we do with God's word where we show up, we hear, we listen, we walk out unchanged. Sunday though is an appointment with the boss of the universe, God. Do you think of the sermon that way, the preached word as God's, God's word flung into your ears from the front of the room? God's word to you and for you your entire life, his work, set apart for his work. Don't hear this the wrong way. It's a kind of a heavy sermon. But this is, these are not harsh words. They're not even ultimately hard, though they require, they require perseverance. Quite to the contrary. You notice the word that he uses to speak about the law? It's liberating. It's a law of liberty. It reflects God and us perfectly, and it speaks to us personally. The world wants to say the, world, the word is enslaving, but it is actually liberating. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing, and there's the reward. There is great promise in keeping God's great word. Hear his word from Psalm 19. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they, God's words, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, this is what they do too, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, having been warned, there is great reward. Now hear the gospel in these final words from Psalm 19. Who can discern God's errors and declare me innocent from hidden faults? Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God is our redeemer before he changes us. He redeems us. And this psalmist was speaking to a God he knew who was slow to anger with him, who redeemed him in salvation. And so God's word became better than gold, even as it warns. And God declares us innocent of faults before he makes us innocent. Praise God for the gospel after a sermon about anger. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that we have heard with our ears. Help us to do this word. Father, help us as we are tempted in anger to sin, to listen long, to be slow to speak. As we are maybe convicted now, by your spirit, bring us to confess Christ as savior and our sin as a problem and help us to grow in it. Help us to see your word as pure, as sure, as right and help it to rejoice our hearts. Make it to rejoice our hearts. Father, we're grateful to you for the cross where we are declared innocent of fault, even as those with great fault. And we're grateful for your word, which transforms us as your children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.